Welcome to Pop and Luck. I'm Natalie Dalzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution have been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea what to expect? Steven Spielberg sure couldn't have expected his 1993 blockbuster, Jurassic Park, would have quite the bite even 27 years later. Joining us today to talk about how life finds a way is Features Editor at Reason, Peter Suderman. Great to be here. And Creative Director at Fee, Sean Malone. Thanks for having me, guys. On the surface, Jurassic Park seems like it has a a pretty simple message uh, that unhindered innovation is rife with potential for misuse and abuse. Do you think that that's what the film is about? Man, uh, uh, on the surface, I do. I mean, I think it's it's a pretty clear, yeah, you know, we talk about sort of Luddite ideas, and I, I do think like on the surface it is. Um, I recently did a video, though, about how I think it's a little bit more about central planning in general and the idea that you can control um, not just the path of innovation, which I actually do think is fair. I, I think you can't control necessarily the path of technological innovation, but maybe on a broader note, the, this idea of playing God, I think, and trying to especially control the path of nature, which I think is maybe a more interesting theme in the movie, at least for me. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a product of a prime era Michael Crichton um, techno scaremongering. And as an entertainment product, it works incredibly well. Um and I mean, I, I just I, I absolutely love this movie. I think it is uh, possibly the best summer movie ever made. One of the sort of most one of the purest blockbusters. Uh, right. If you kind of think of what a, a summer blockbuster should be, it's Jurassic mm-hmm. Park. It hits all of the notes at the same time. Thematically, I, I kind of strongly disagree with it. Um, and I and I. I don't I mean I I think there's something to Sean's idea that it's about central planning but if you look at the the key scene in which the movie's big themes are debated it's this lunch sequence uh, early in the film in which um Hammond who is the park owner and the lawyer and then you know the scientists uh, played by Grant uh, scientists played by Neil uh, Sam Neil and Ian Malcolm um kind of argue about what the risks posed by the park are, right? And uh, Hammonds calls uh, uh, Ian Malcolm at one point. He says, "Well, th- this is like a Luddite idea that you're proposing. I can't believe the lawyers are the you, the lawyers, the only one on my side, the blood sucking lawyer, right?" And we are supposed to see uh, the Sam Neill and Ian Malcolm characters um, as the heroes. They are they are very clearly the people we are supposed to root for, and they are the ones who start by warning us that this park is dangerous, that it was built on ideas that its you know designers didn't understand, that it is technology and capitalism run amok. And then that's what happens. Like their warnings prove prophetic. And the whole second hour of the film are just proving that those guys were right and that this park was, in fact, a bad idea. Uh built by scientists who didn't understand their own technology and by people who were hoping to capitalize on something where they didn't care about the risks. And I just don't think that that's a really a, a very good way to think about how capitalism and innovation and science work together. Um, it makes for a great movie premise. Like I said, I love this movie, but I don't think it's a I, I just don't think it's a, a a very sophisticated way of thinking about um, how innovation works. And in fact, you know, we can talk about this a little bit more. Uh, I've said a lot here, but I think the movie itself and the production of the movie is actually a much better way of thinking. It provides us with a with a good way of thinking about how science and innovation work in the real world. To kind of reinforce your point even a little bit. And, and again, I, I do want to talk about the way that we can look at this from a central planning standpoint. But but uh, to reinforce your point, even I think Alan, Alan Grant is himself a Luddite, like as a character. So yes. like Ian Malcolm is not, is not really, he's just a normal guy. He, you know, he uses phones and whatever. He doesn't seem like somebody who's opposed to technology, but Grant is. Grant is somebody who seems to want to use, you know, all of the old methods, you know, the, the least technological ways of doing things. We get that scene at the beginning where they're using, you know, he's, he's dusting off uh, fossils and then they start using the the technology to you know scan 
the the ground and he is not really convinced that that's a good idea i mean there's there's all of those kinds of things that that make it clear that he is the hero so i i, I totally agree there's it's a, not just that he's not convinced it's that when he touches the machine it goes on the fritz right breaks. he is yeah. he's, he is <laughs> He he is yeah. almost superhumanly anti-technology, right? It's yeah. like it is. Yeah, yeah. It's it's something a little bit supernatural about his. Like he puts off like an aura or something that just causes machines to go in the fritz, yeah. right? I mean, well, it's a great yeah. little character bit. Yeah, and I think there's more t- to that aspect of the character throughout the movie too, because you know, like computer systems don't really work. He doesn't, you know, when um, uh, you know, the, he's in there with the kids. The kids are trying to use computers, and he's just such an old sort of fuddy-duddy kind of guy, like can't understand the computer systems or any of that kind of stuff. And yet he is, you know, he's the actual hero. He's the one who saves everybody's lives. I mean, obviously, you know, Ellie and Ian play a role in that too, but he's the one who's leading the kids to safety most of the Mm -hmm. movie, you know? Well, I I also thought what was interesting about Alan Grant's character, since uh, he was such a, a technophobe and, didn't really understand how computers worked. And then even when Hammond was showing him how they, um, how all of the dinosaurs are female and how they uh, made the uh, embryos and then had the eggs, he was even confused how that technology worked. But what was interesting, I thought there was a point in the movie, I believe he was talking to the kids. And I, another element you put in here that he like hates children uh, and like despise, like didn't want children, despise them. And even like kind of like, the fact that the children are like following them around the park, you you can see is like angering him, like just their like what he perceives as like a pesty existence. He was talking to the kids after their, you know, they, their car broke down and they got pushed by T-Rex off the ledge and they're sitting in a tree. Um, He was talking to uh, the the girl asked him like, Oh, so if dinosaurs exist now, like what are you going to do for a job? Like you don't have to dig up, bones anymore if you like have the real thing and he he himself says he i think he used the line like oh it looks like we'll have to evolve too which i thought was interesting because he seemed very stuck in his ways until that conversation that came from a little uh, from a child uh noticing that like technology is catching up to you well that whole that whole bit goes to one of the film's big metaphors which is not um uh, it in some ways, the film isn't about dinosaurs. It's about the movies and about the way the movies evolved um, to become uh, from something that was very hands-on, practical, physical, real-world stuff into something that was very uh, th- that's very animated, uh, computer-generated, technology-driven. Um, uh, sort of, you know, a, a big capitalist business where you know most of your uh, money is not even made on the film itself, but made on the an- ancillary products, right? You, uh, you know, it's, this is the the Ian Malcolm line about, uh, yeah. you know, you made it and then you slapped it on a lunchbox, right? Uh, you wanted to profit off of it, yeah. right? And that was Jurassic Park. That is Jurassic Park still today. That is that's why we're talking about it is because it has survived for nearly three decades as a popular culture franchise right and and has become a huge part of our kind of pop not just our pop culture discussion but a giant business right and one of the first movies to go back into production here during covid times is the sixth i want to say the the next jurassic park film which is the third in the second trilogy um and so we have this we have this movie that is a, a metaphor for for the the changes in film production but like I said, I think the production of the movie is actually a, uh, provides us a, a better way to think about how innovation and capitalism work. Because, you know, let's start with the way that this got produced, which was that uh, the people who bought the rights went to Steven Spielberg. And Steven Spielberg had just come off of uh, working on Hook and he, Spielberg wanted to make Schindler's List. And the people who had the rights said, you can make Schindler's List, but you have to promise to make Jurassic Park. And the reason we got the sort of the, you know, the, the one of the great kind of, um, you know, Oscar dramas, you know, historical dramas uh, about, you know, it's a, a really important subject um, f- of the last couple of decades. One of the best movies, you know, uh, about the Holocaust was because the deal was you've got to make this incredibly commercial thing that is going to make us a ton of money and did. It became the highest grossing film up to that point and was until I believe Titanic came out, all right? The, the whole point of, uh, of making Jurassic Park was 
so that somebody could make a ton of money so that Steven Spielberg could get to make his art. And that, to me, is a much sort of better understanding of the relationship between innovation and art and capitalism and, you know, and, and all that stuff. And that conversation that you referenced there is actually in some ways an extrapolation of a real conversation that Steven Spielberg had with some of the effects guys while working on this film, where, uh, you know, he was looking at test reels of computer generated dinosaurs walking and he said to one of the effects guys who was this like you know oh you know a uh, very famous um stop motion guy who used to do stuff with puppets and with you know not claymation but with little tiny models that they would just sort of move frame by frame and, and capture in a very painstaking physical way and you know spielberg said looks like you're out of a job and the effects guy would turn back to him and said no i'm extinct and of course, it turned out that the effects guys, the this the effects on this movie, a bunch of the computer effects were built by people who had retrained from being stop motion animators to being computer animators. And they were able to transfer those practical skills uh, from the analog era into the digital era. And that to me is right. Like here we have a, a kind of a coincidence of once some Spielberg wants to make his art film about, uh, about the Holocaust. It's not obviously like a tiny little budget art film, but like he wants to make his passion project. Uh, somebody else wants to make money on, you know, a, a big commercial summer film. Somebody else wants to figure out how to animate computer dinosaurs and audiences Audiences just want to be entertained either way. Everybody gets what they want out of this. And at the same time, there are huge advances in the science of movie making that come along. You know, what I, what I think is also interesting about this is that what you're describing in the story of the movie, in the, in the narrative of the movie itself, is a trope that we've seen in, in movies, in, you know, in particular big blockbuster movies for a really, really long time. And I think it speaks to this uh, this sort of contentiousness and so sort of conflict that's really happening inside the movie making process where, like you said, the Spielberg wants to make an art piece. He wants to make something that is personally meaningful to him, which everybody kind of agrees is not going to be something that lots and lots of other people are going to be as interested in as, you know, as say Jurassic Park. So, you know, what you end up with is a lot of directors, filmmakers, writers, you know, producers who have a little bit of this animosity is sort of this this underlying anger about the idea that there are trade offs in the world, that they have to make something that is is commercially successful in order to make the thing that, you know, maybe they really want to make because it's a passion project or whatever. And I'm I'm always a little fascinated by that in the art world, because I don't feel like it happens quite as much outside of that. I think most people who don't do creative work for a living, I think generally sort of understand that their job is to create value for either their employer or a customer, you know, client, whatever. Um, but I feel like a lot of artists have this idea that their role is to do whatever makes them feel good. And so there is this, especially when you get into commercial production, especially big budget commercial production, you get a lot of this tension that has to be dealt with. And I think a lot of the way that it gets dealt with is through the stories themselves, right? So you end up having a story that is telling this like really angsty, you know, technology is bad and capitalism is evil while all of this this process is happening to actually bring the whole project to life in the first place, which I always found to be kind of a fascinating dichotomy in, in especially big budget filmmaking. By the way, I, I attended New York University for grad school where it's, which is a very different school than like USC. If you go to USC for film school, it's very commercially driven. New York University, Tisch is really interesting because almost all the filmmakers who go to Tisch sort of see themselves as these, you know, savants and these auteurs and stuff. And so the, the mentality that I sort of grew up with in my education was so dramatically different from the mentality that people who come out of US, UCLA and USC come from. So Hollywood and, and filmmaking outside of Hollywood are very different. And that's the milieu that Spielberg comes out of. And he and it is notable, I think, that this kind of nominally anti-capitalist picture is was made by one of if not the single most commercially successful 
filmmakers of all time um, and was, like I said, uh, in its day, the single most successful uh, picture that had ever been released at the American box office and, and stayed that way for several years. And in fact, has has continued to sort of to assert its box office dominance. Um, I don't know if you guys saw, but, you know, obviously movie theaters have been shut down um, in many parts of the country for the last six months or so, uh, which means that in the few places that are playing theaters, they are often playing um, older films at drive-ins, things like that. And so there was a, a week in, I believe it was June or maybe it was early July over the summer here where Jurassic Park was for the fourth time ever the number one movie at the U.S. box office. That's hilarious. Uh, it would be so great to see this at a drive-in theater. It's like like you said, the perfect summer, perfect drive-in movie. Like you can imagine the scene of them sitting in the Jeep, you know, waiting for the, the T-Rex to come and find them while sitting in your own car staring at the <laughs> screen would just be so much more uh, visceral and enjoyable because you would it would be like you were in the movie briefly. You know, I, I um, I've actually been to a theater uh, recently. Um, I, <laughs> I I went to see the first new movie that was available to me, which was Unhinged, which is not a very good movie, <laughs> but um, but it was the first time since all this started that I could actually sit in a theater and, and watch a movie. So I I took the the first opportunity and i wanted to see something new even though they were showing other stuff i'm actually curious though i bet my local theater which was at the time also playing back to the future i bet back to the future did more box office there are some of these movies and and obviously you know we're in a weird really weird time for all of this stuff but i think jurassic park or back to the future or jaws or you know another movie that was playing was interstellar there are some of these uh, things yeah. which are just going to stand and already have stood the test of time because of the craft, but also because of the storytelling. I just think the the dichotomy, and I think this is the, really the interesting thing about Jurassic Park to me from a meta standpoint is all this like that that sort of contradiction between being this kind of anti-capitalist movie that could not exist without the entrepreneurial and and, you know, uh, investment structure behind it you know it's it's really fascinating and it's very much a throwback to the 1990s debates about selling out and corporate power and you know the sort of ad busters view of the world that was very uh, prominent and like questions about whether your favorite local band should sign to a big <laughs> label and make a lot of money <laughs> yeah, and yeah. have a lot of fans and like actually be able to support themselves and there, there was like a, a whole prevailing theory which I was, you know, partook of in some ways as a teenager that like, no, actually you couldn't like you couldn't be in a good band if you signed to a major label and actually got the resources that you need to support yourself making your music. Somehow or another, you had to like work at the local toy store or something, you know, and or <laughs> you know, be a, a line cook at a fast food place. And that was the only pure way to be in a band. And like Jurassic Park is a a more sophisticated um <laughs> more commercially uh, accessible version of, a, you know, encapsulation of a lot of those arguments. Well, and it's funny to even have that argument with, you know, a movie made by somebody like St Steven Spielberg, who had already worked on Indiana Jones and, and E.T. and Close Encounters and, and all of these kinds of things that you're just like, yeah, you've been making big, huge Jaws, you know, huge commercially successful movies this whole time. And now we're now we're going to have this... <laughs> He's a capitalist success story, if there ever was yeah, one. Seriously. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Right. This really is the U2 of summer blockbuster movies. <laughs> <laughs> this made me think, we, we keep referring to this movie as sort of anti-capitalist and trying to, you know— you know, supply this message that um, selling out in the sort of punk rock phraseology um, <laughs> is bad. Uh, and that sort of consumerist tendency is is what the film is trying to critique. Um, and this might get into one of Sean's thoughts that he briefly mentioned wanting to discuss a little bit. But I was thinking on a metaphorical level, uh, like not strictly in a narrative plot sense where we see the humans being sort of, sort of trying to escape the monsters that are these dinosaurs and fighting against the um, unhinged 
uh, uh, hubris of these scientific innovators and who have sort of abused their their power uh, and are being punished by the gods for their sort of Promethean endeavors. <laughs> um, there is another way of looking at the movie, and I think it takes it, – it, you have to look at it in the way that Alan Grant sort of looks at things. So the first time when he sees the shattered – uh, dinosaur egg on the ground in the wild, not when he's uh, watching the uh, geneticists breed them in the lab in the beginning, but when they're running through and he, you know, jumps over uh, like a, a tree root and he sees a shattered dinosaur egg after they've just been chased by a Tyrannosaurus Rex for an entire night <laughs> and hidden up in a tree. His first reaction isn't to be like, oh my God. They're breeding and like be struck <laughs> by fear. Like I was assuming that he would and that I likely would have because I am a coward in that aspect. Um, it's oh, they're just baby weird... dinosaurs. <laughs> oh, only babies. Just baby dinosaurs. Um, he has this brief moment where his sort of paleontologist, archaeologist side comes out and he references what the, the famous line, life finds a way he says life found a way when he sees that these dinosaurs with their um genetically manipulated dinosaur frog dna <laughs> have somehow been able to mutate and, and reproduce and breed somehow and there's this brief moment of him recognizing the beauty in the disorder and that becomes a major theme that begets that gets developed and we see this in uh like in malcolm's discussions of chaos theory and how mm -hmm. the order itself is it sort of erupts out of disorder and so on a metaphorical level it i can see what sean i think you might be hinting at which is the fact that without the constraints seemingly uncontrollable unpredictable things like uh, a market for instance will breed its own form of innovation and uh and sort of growth out of that is is that what you sort yeah. of see as one of the themes of the film yeah so i do so um for those for those listeners who don't know i do a, a it's now more than monthly because we do shorts but I, I do essentially a monthly uh video series with fee called out of frame where i i try to pull out um what i think are interesting lessons from economics or political philosophy or just philosophy in general um from you know, movies, television, that kind of thing. And I always want to make this a little clear. Like, like I'm, I, I don't want to say that Jurassic Park is a movie that is about central planning or, or you know, this kind of thing. But I think we can draw this lesson out of it because I, I think what you do see, and you, this is definitely clear in, there's a couple things. I, I, I made note of a conversation between Ellie and Hammond um, this is sort of towards the end of the movie and, and it, at almost the very end of the movie where Hammond says, well, creation is an act of sheer will. Next time it'll be flawless. And Ellie says, it's still the flea circus. He was talking about the little fleas that he had when he was a kid. <laughs> and she, and he, Hammond goes, well, when we have control and Ellie says, you never had control. That's the illusion. I was overwhelmed by the power of this place. So I made a mistake too. I didn't have enough respect for that power and it's out now. Um, you know, and then they're talking about how to save the kids at that point. But the interesting thing about that moment to me is that they're, they're having a discussion about the limits of planning, the limits of being able to control dynamic systems. In particular, you know, you're talking about biological, you know, it's not quite the same as, as an economy, but I tend to look at economies in a very biological way. I tend to see them as organic developments of, you know, behavior that nobody can really fully know or plan or understand in the way that they would need to, if they need to, if they want to actually plan and control all of this stuff. And I think we do see that in, in this movie. And I think it's an interesting thing to pull out of that, especially if you're trying to show people different ways of how central planning kind of goes awry you know right you throw dinos in the mix <laughs> right yeah well and yeah in this case of course it's trying to centrally plan dy a dynamic system with very dangerous creatures you know which is maybe maybe not a wise move yeah i think i buy that jurassic park presents a hayekian view of nature in which the local knowledge of the dinosaurs basically 
uh, you know, kind of is a stand in for local knowledge in the economy. Um, and Hammond is the the planner who is trying to oversee all of it and control it from above. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously he's, he hasn't done a very good job in spite of, you know, on the surface developing incredible technology with, with Henry Wu. And, you know, I, I don't know if we want to get into the sequels or in particular into the, the new movies, you know, Jurassic world and whatnot, but Henry Wu is now kind of a villain, right. In the whole thing where now he's like a bad guy who's trying to genetically engineer super evil dinosaurs for some reason but but um, well it it is really funny the way that the Jurassic World the two Jurassic World films that have come out that's the those are the modern sequels um have expanded on the original's critique of capitalism because the whole shtick of the first Jurassic World film is that the old normal dinosaurs aren't enough anymore and we had to build like right. a genetically engineered <laughs> super dinosaur because otherwise people wouldn't come to our park and it's literally just like the rule of sequels which is you can't do the same thing uh, you can't do exactly the same thing over and over again you have to do the same thing, same thing but, but do more. it more right. and bigger and scarier yeah. and the once again, Jurassic, just as Jurassic Park is a metaphor for a changing Hollywood and ch uh, changing production methods and viewer expectations uh, for blockbusters, Jurassic World takes that idea and extrapolates it out to, you know, 20 something years later um, and a world in which Jurassic Park is uh, is old school and old hat. And people have seen it and are, if not quite tired of it, ready for something bigger and more and scarier and more you know genetically engineered than uh than what we saw in the first film so i hadn't really thought about this but while you know we were kind of prepping for this episode stuff but i, I so over the, the sorry this is I'm, i gotta set this up a little bit but a couple of years ago my wife and i were driving to um to indiana and we we drove through kentucky and as we were headed up there we passed a bunch of billboards that were uh, advertising some kind of an animatronic dinosaur show. So basically, it's a it's a traveling show that um, yeah. has a bunch of animatronic dinosaurs, and you and they they've built it out inside a big warehouse or you know big ballroom or whatever, and you go in and it's kind of jungle scene, and you go through the whole thing and, and see dinosaurs, and it's you know it's obviously something that's it's really kitsch and it's kind of fun for little kids. Maybe it's that's what it's meant for. And but my wife and I love that kind of stuff because it's so obscure and it's it's stuff that you you discover while maybe driving through the country, but which you'd never hear about otherwise because it's not important to anybody. And so uh, so we were like, OK, on our way back from Indiana, we're going to stop at this place and we're going to check it out. And we did. And then this summer, during all of the covid stuff, a very similar, if not the same show came to Atlanta where where I live and did the whole thing outdoors and you drove through it in your car and we did that too because we thought what the hell when is this going to happen again so that's you know and also we hadn't left the house in months so you know it <laughs> it was the first thing we could do but i it's interesting though because it is the kind of thing that i think in the you know, 80s or 90s maybe would have been a very fun new thing for people to do. But in a world with, you know, Call of Duty and The Witcher and like... Call of Duty and The Witcher are enough, man. That's thousands of hours of your life right, right. there. Yeah, you don't need more. <laughs> but that's what I'm, that's what I'm saying. Like in, in, the, in that kind of a world, this kind of attraction is not interesting to anybody. So there is something to be said a little bit for that. Like, well... Dinosaurs are boring now. We don't care anymore. It's just it's just the fact that there's also this military element and, and everything else. It just gets so over the top so quickly. And and to deliberately try to make dinosaurs that are more murdery, that's <laughs> just they've learned nothing. Four movies in, five movies in, we've we've learned nothing at all. Yeah, we'll see what happens by Jurassic World Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
Well, so we've all been uh, hinting at the role that genetics plays throughout uh, Jurassic Park and obviously throughout the rest of the the rest of the franchise, especially now that we're genetically modifying. What was the, the last one was the Endorex. So it was the ge- genetically modified T-Rex, the, the, the scarier T-Rex, then mixed with a raptor. Or was it Endoraptor? It was an endoraptor. That was in the most recent one. Yeah, it was an endoraptor. So what do you... And there was a line that Ian Malcolm said, I I think it was in the first movie, um, that genetic power is the most awesome force that the planet has ever seen. Do we we agree with that? The the line (laughs) finishes, but you wield it like a kid that's found his dad's gun. That's right. It is an argument that genetic manipulation is uh, is a weapon is is a form of violence yeah um, and that it is always going to turn on us and i think that that argument is wrong oh like very, i very love wrong. ian malcolm but yeah. uh and, and he is in, in many ways like a, a role model you know for uh right for like for like how reason interacts with the world um you know uh, <laughs> right there's a lot of leather jacket like Just, there's, me, 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 there's me, a lot big, of Ian malcolm in in nick i think there's it's very clear that there's it, ian there's malcolm has been injected into reason's dna our genetic are like we are a genetic hybrid of like Ian Malcolm <laughs> and Lanny Friedlander and Hayek <laughs> and Milton Friedman and right and like you know he's he's he is part of it he is the frog DNA that makes us weird oh my um, god and uh, no and and I I get that viewpoint that it that it seems like something sacred but the thing is that that. Genetic manipulation, to the extent that we have been able to do it successfully um, so far, has been almost entirely a force for good. It has given us Mm -hmm. better and more stable food supplies, um, and it has enabled us to cure and mitigate diseases. And all signs are that it is going to, that as that technology advances over the decades, it is going to continue to do that sort of thing. It's going to make human flourishing. Uh, easier and more successful. It is going to allow life to find a way rather than prohibit it. Yeah. You know, also I, I feel like, you know, I'm sure there are some scientists out there who would, who would, you know, reject this statement or whatever. I'm not really sure, but it, it seems to me that like when you get genetic manipulation wrong, the worst thing that typically happens is whatever you're trying to do just doesn't work. It doesn't live or, or grow. Or, you know, if you're trying to do this with a, you know, with a, life, you know, not like a animal life or whatever, like it just doesn't work. You know, the, the embryo doesn't take that kind of thing. Doesn't, you know, doesn't happen. It never really seems to be the case that you end up with some, you know, mutant monster that, that destroys. I mean, you're not going to have that because genetics is not, I mean, it is powerful, but it's not, uh, it's not magic. You know, you, you can't like just take frogs and lizards and birds and create like a dragon. You know, like that's that's not how any of this works. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that that's kind of how we package it in art a lot of the time. Just one of the things that we should talk about briefly, if we're going to talk about the the, the power of genetic engineering. Yes, it's incredibly powerful. It gave us golden rice, which right, is, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is just rice that grows uh, more easily in more places and has dr- allowed millions of people to live and have enough food to live. Yep. Um, and that's, that's what right. genetic engineering does. Genetic engineering doesn't give us crazy dinosaurs. That's what the <laughs> movies do. Um, yeah. It gives us food that we can eat and allows people to live who might otherwise starve to death. The other thing, too, is we we don't talk enough about the I mean, so I, I think you know, we probably talk about this a decent amount in general, but like I, people, people don't tend to talk a lot about the actual incentives or, or how any of this stuff would make sense from a commercial standpoint. You know, I mean, it's like we create golden rice because there is a need, there's a human need to eat. There's a lot of starvation. And, you know, in some cases there's profit to be made from feeding people. Right. But also, there's there's just an altruistic aspect of that. You know, we want people not to starve to death. So there are a lot of good motivations that people have going into feeding people. There's not a lot of incentive to create a monster that would murder a whole bunch of people. You know, you have to be a, a really niche, special kind of lunatic 
to want to do that. And then you'd have to convince all of these other people to go along with your plan. It's not actually that surprising why that doesn't really happen in real life, you know. Um, but yet, again, you know, without it, a movie wouldn't happen. So I'm not, uh, you know, it's a movie. Like, it's fun. But, yeah, I, th- I think it gets that aspect of things like, really dramatically wrong. Sean, are you suggesting that uh, you wouldn't want to see a real-life dinosaur? Oh, I would love to see a real-life dinosaur. I would be thrilled. But I also – well, okay. Also, I was going to make this point too. The, the movie itself, all of these movies, gets dinosaurs dramatically wrong anyway because like when you learn that a velociraptor is basically the size of a turkey, it completely changes your perspective on how fearsome that creature actually is. Cause well, look, way to ruin it all. Like, like an actual turkey, not, you know, not a human sized, you know, giant elephant bird. Like it's, yeah, they were little, you know, that, that, that said, I, I also don't want to discount the fact that if you look at the, the evil that is modern birds, like geese, dinosaurs (laughs) would still be very scary. I don't want, I, I don't want a prehistoric goose running after me. So this uh, movie, based on a novel, uh, as Peter mentioned before, by Michael Crichton, um, raises a lot of other uh, similar themes that we see in another Michael Crichton-inspired, recently revived saga, which is the cinematic universe of Westworld. So my first thought was when do we get to see jurassic world in westworld well uh, there's two more seasons of westworld coming um it's true and we know that dragons exist in one of the worlds yeah. so i don't think it's out of the question to assume that you know one of the the other worlds in addition to war world and game of thrones world westeros world that we're going to get jurassic world it really is remarkable i think how much this movie is a crossbreed between Michael Crichton's obsessions and Steven Spielberg's and how how effectively those two interests um, and sort of thematic and, and narrative interests have combined because Spielberg has said that, that Jurassic Park was just Jaws on land. That's what he was trying to make, right? It is a it's a monster in the house movie where you don't see the monster until halfway through, right? The uh, the T Rex, the 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 actual murder dinosaur, doesn't show up until uh, an hour and three minutes into a two hour and six minute movie. It's almost perfectly just at flawless. the fifty percent mark, right? It's just, I mean, it's so impeccably structured, um, and but very similar to Jaws in that respect, where they withhold. Uh, the shark for a long time, um, right? And they kind of learned that doing so made for a more effective movie. They did so actually just because of production problems with the shark robot. Um, <laughs> and then and then you combine that with Michael Crichton's Westworld, which in the, the 1970s version of it, the, the version he envisioned was just theme park with high technology goes awry. And that's this movie. It's It's Westworld meets Jaws. And that's that's really all it is. And it is in, in its own way a, a an example of how not literally genetic engineering, but a kind of genetic crossbreeding can produce novel, interesting results. Right. Because you're taking because that's all that that genetic crossbreeding is, is taking the properties of one thing and. Uh, combining them with the properties of something else. And what Jurassic Park is, is a genetic crossbreed of Steven Spielberg's Jaws and Michael Crichton's Westworld. And it's great. I think it's better than either of the original uh, of the original strains. Well, this is why I always like, you know, Matt, Matt Ridley's framing of this, you know, of entrepreneurship or just of, of cultural exchange as, as ideas having sex, which I think is a really interesting way to think about how ideas evolve how and and you can see this of course like really really dramatically in art because everybody is constantly trying to synthesize interests and art doesn't have some of the barriers that you have with you know engineering for example where you know you might have two different interests in engineering and they they just physically can't coexist with art you can do whatever you want so it it makes for a world where we can we can take these ideas and and recombine them in sort of endless ways. And I, and I agree. I think it ended up with 
a really, really cool, I frankly, I think a movie that that's, well, I don't want to say it's better than Jaws, but I would say that I, I personally like it a lot more than Jaws. Um, and I like it a lot more than Westworld. At least I like it more than, than the, the, the original Westworld, although that's, it's kind of a low bar from a yeah, m- movie standpoint, but, um, <laughs> I have a soft know. spot for the original Westworld. I probably like uh, it more than the new Westworld too. I, it maybe you, first. Yul Brenner's first man in black is, is so great. And again, you know, a, a, a he became a sort of theme in movies, right? You can't imagine a T-1000 and Terminator 2 without the man in black, right? Like all of these things just sort of have, they have genetic lineages um, in, in cinema. And, and you, and, you know, to me, I mean, I, I Sean, it, I, I imagine this is the same with you and, and, and Landry and Natalie, right? Part of what's enjoyable about watching new movies and seeing new movies all the time, which is something that I've really missed uh, over the last couple of months, is seeing the ways that old ideas pop up again and again. And right. Oh, yeah. And that, it, that everything is sort of that there's very rarely something that is totally stunningly new and also great. And that in fact, greatness is typically adding one new idea to a collage, you know, to a stew of old ideas that, uh, that have been circulating for a while and have just not been combined in quite the right way before. Well, I, and I th- Jurassic Park is an example of that. It, it has very few completely new ideas, but what it does is combine old ideas in a very novel way. So I feel that way about music too, because if you, if you, I mean, I feel that way about all, all art forms really, but one of the things that music is, is the one that I'm, I'm most familiar with because that's my, that's my background. But, but the looking back over the history of, you know, what we do now is we categorize things well after the fact into different eras, you know, classical mm-hmm. era, romantic era, you know, neoclassical, modern, all of these things. And we, we do this with movies too. But the reality is like, as you drill down closer and closer and closer and start to see where the edges of these things lie, they're really, really blurry because what you are actually looking at is cultural shifts that happen by one artist or musician, composer, filmmaker, whatever, uh, just taking little pieces from somebody that they liked, that they were influenced by, adding the, that next new little piece. And that, over time, creates this ebb and flow of, of where art goes. And what, what I love about that is that there is no actual... I mean, yes, you, you can kind of break things down into generational eras for the sake of simplicity and, and you know making it a little easier to discuss. But the reality is there's no line it's just constantly blurring changing you know ideas that that just sort of continually evolve and that's that is a really fascinating part of all of this and yeah absolutely i agree i love i love going to see a new take on a on an old idea or yeah cuz i mean again you, you mentioned monster in the house i mean that's that's you know pulling from blake snyder and and i i think blake snyder's story forms or Sid Fields, anybody really like they're you see them over and over and over again. There's a reason that you can label something a monster in the house movie or like a dude with a problem movie, you know, like they exist. <laughs> that's because we've told these same stories over and over and over again, but that's, that's the beauty of it, right? We can keep telling some of the same stories, but make them new enough and fresh enough and interesting enough by mixing ideas by mixing um influences you know and to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning that's also how science works you know and and in some ways i think that goes back to the the movie's essential critique of the park's uh hubris you know which is uh the ian malcolm quote you stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could before you even knew what you had you patented it packaged it slapped it on a lunchbox now you want to sell it right but literally he's just describing how science works it is it's an iterative process in which you build on the work uh, and the knowledge of the people who came before you. You you don't discover it all of yourself. Um, and science happens in many, many cases because someone has a product they want to sell to other people, and people then buy that product because they think it's going to make their life better. And that's true whether it is you know a vaccine or a cancer drug or whether it's just a slightly better toilet bowl c- cleaner. In either case, somebody's got to figure out how to make it 
to go through a scientific process of building and engineering a product. And then they've got to figure out how to recoup uh, and hopefully profit off of the time they you know, uh, recoup the the uh, the resources they spent on building it um, and pay for the distribution of it. And their goal is to, in many cases, get it out to as many people as possible, um, which is, you know, not to not to just sort of keep it for the for for a, a very elite few, um, but to to distribute these things and make them widely available, which is how we get cost reductions. And it's it's really sort of notable that the the movie positions itself as being in opposition to that while partaking in exactly that process. And now for the time of the show where we all share the other pieces of media that we've been enjoying while we've been stuck inside during the pandemic. This is Locked In. So, Sean, Peter, uh, Natalie, what all have you been enjoying while we have been locked in? Last night, I finished the seventh and final season of Ray Donovan. And uh, Oh, nice. And it was... It was the most disappointing possible ending because the show got <laughs> it got un, because un, it was a television show that lasted for seven seasons. Yes, well, <laughs> yes, it, it lasted too long. About three seasons in, like it should have ended at three or four, definitely based on what Showtime. what story they were able to tell. But no, mo- most importantly, because it was unceremoniously canceled with no ah. attempt to wrap up any arc whatsoever. So it just stopped like we just got to the end of the seventh season and it was just you know it was very much a cliffhanger things were not at all resolved and now it's over and that's (laughs) (sighs) that's pretty much who knows maybe maybe you'll get picked up and and Amazon will do a a, a one off you know, and they or a special or a movie they or probably something will. And but it what made me angry about it a little bit was was just if you're gonna be in that situation as a studio or a network, just just give the writers and and everybody involved in the show one episode. Just give them one to just be like, look, we we contracted you for ten for this season. We're gonna give you eleven. Just wrap it all up. There, it would have been it would have been disappointing anyway, but at least it would have tried to resolve some things. Otherwise, now I've got this just dissonant note hanging out in the universe that I will never, I'll never have closure on. It's a bummer. That's so sad. It is sad. <laughs> uh, guys, I saw Tenet last night in a movie theater. Oh, I'm going and, on Thursday. Oh, and uh, I, you know, the the so let's start with the plot here. Um. The Christopher Nolan has is famously secretive about his stories generally and especially about this movie. Uh, I'm not going to spoil Tenet for you because I'm not sure I could. <laughs> it, it is <laughs> it is just an extravagantly ludicrous film. I am not actually sure whether it's incredibly cerebral or just confusing. It might well be both. Um, but it's really great to just see something like that in a theater again. Um, and, you know, so I, I've been going to, I mean, I'm a, a huge movie nerd. I probably, I go to the movies 50 or 60 times a year. I've been writing about them, you know, sort of at least part of my, uh, as at least part of my job for about 15 years at this point. Um, I I don't think I have gone six months without seeing a movie as I have here in a theater uh, since I was in grade school, possibly not since I was in elementary school. I definitely um, right? haven't. Yeah, yeah. I, and it's, it's insane. It's been a very strange experience. Um, but getting just getting to see, uh, getting back into a theater and getting to see something um, as impressively crafted as Tenet uh, was really great. And, you know, so it's it's a Christopher Nolan film. It's about time bending. That's not surprising. He's been exploring Shocker. ideas <laughs> uh, about time manipulation and the perception of time uh, for basically since his career started. You can go back to Memento, which is a a forwards, backwards time story in which one person is basically experiencing time backwards while there is a while also we we are experiencing it both forwards and backwards, depending on where you are in the movie at any given point. You can think about something like Dunkirk, uh, which is, you know, has three competing timelines. One takes place over an hour, one over a day, one over uh, a the course of a week. 
you know, I, I mean, even something like the prestige is all about sort of the elaborate uh, playing with people's perception of time. And it's really fascinating to see this this worldview come together over the course of a couple of decades of filmmaking, um, where Nolan really seems to have this conviction that all of us understand time wrong, that we are, we all perceive it differently. And this idea that everyone experiences and perceives time exactly the same way is incorrect. And it really sort of hit home after six months of being in a quasi quarantine, you know, not quite locked down, but like a, a, a very sort of closed and cloistered situation uh, here because of uh, the, the pandemic and where time has like seemed to lose its meaning and days just sort of repeat themselves. And I'm not sure if I'm going forward in time or backwards and like thinking about prior, you know, any event prior to, you know, about the middle of March of 2020, like all, all of that time seems to have sort of collapsed and, and become both closer and further away. And it's really just like, I don't think he he clearly did not intend to make a movie about what it feels like to be shut in your house and like the way that time <laughs> stops uh, working properly. On the other hand, he kind of did. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that I they also just consistently appreciate about Nolan is that he is a humanist individualist. He oh, is yeah. he is somebody who says that in the face of of uh, you know insurmountable odds. Um, that we can, you know, that like the the world is in some ways a bleak place, but what we can do is make choices to make it better. And that is the theme of this movie. Again, without spoiling the plot, it is about people who who choose in the face of uh, of impossible difficulty to make the world a better place. And that that is what it means to be human. And so, you know, he's just this great sort of classical liberal, not necessarily in the economic sense, but in the kind of individualistic values uh, and and humanistic sense, and has a really, really fascinating um, uh, sense of how time works and how individuals work within that time and what it is that we should try to do with ourselves uh, with the time that we have. Unfortunately, I haven't gotten to go see it yet, but I hope I, I hope I can soon. I'd like to get back to the movie theater. I, other things I've kind of been watching. Uh, so I started the man in the high castle and I'm almost through the first season. I'm enjoying it, but I'm not, I don't really get the hype that all these people sold it to me on. Um, but so far I'm enjoying it. It's, it's something I watch like while I'm working out. Uh, so I don't, I haven't, necessarily i binge watched it other than that um have you read the novel just, i have not read the novel is it better than the show i i really prefer the novel to the show i think that okay. the show just sort of takes the novel's idea and some of the kind of setups and extrapolates from them the novel is uh a much tighter story uh much it's sort of it's more pleasantly weird than than the yeah. show is um <laughs> and also like a you kind of have to read it in the context of like that sort of historical uh, revisionist fiction wasn't a genre at that time. It was something that was pretty novel um, and that has since mm -hmm. become a, you know, a, a genre unto its own. I, I haven't really been watching other things uh, lately just because I've been m trying to get outside more and go biking and running. Uh, but I did play a few, a few mean games of Quiddler if people are looking for ideas of uh, card games or board games, uh, I hadn't played Cuddler in a while since I was little, but uh, yeah, I played a few games of that and that's, that's been about it. I have uh, a few things that I've been sort of uh, bouncing between uh, since the last time that we talked. Um, one thing that I've been watching a lot with my wife is a series that's, it's on Netflix, but it's actually, uh, it's produced by Ule, which is a the <laughs> Finnish, I guess it is technically state-run television network. Um, but it is it's a crime story set in a, a it's called Border Town on Netflix. But um, uh, it the Finnish name for it that my wife always calls it is Sorionen, and it's about <laughs> a detective who lives in a border town very close to the Russian border with Finland, and 
if you watch the movie, you would think that Finland is a much more violent place than it actually <laughs> is statistically because it's it has that great sort of Nordic noir, very dark crime tone a lot of the time where these like really twisted things happen. And I'm sure in the history, some of these things may have happened, but it makes it seem like they happen all the time there. Um, but it's shot very, very well. It's very uh, sort of... Uh, has has a great atmosphere and still is entertaining and light. There's like lots of fun banter and they have a quirky sort of detective. So it's nothing groundbreaking in the sort of quirky detective solves dark crimes genre, but it is different enough considering it's not set here in America that, you know, if you want to mix it up a little bit, I recommend it. Uh, Border Town. I mean, this is you have to wonder sometimes if Europeans think that like small towns in Maine just have murder rates through the freaking <laughs> yeah. roof, right? That like the murder yes. she wrote was, you know, that like there's somebody just gets murdered every week. Yeah. Like that's just normal. And there's always like a really <laughs> elaborate backstory to that murder, like in, in any small northeastern town. It's I mean, I don't think that's how it actually works, though. I have also, I am almost done. I'm in the last season of The Legend of Korra, um, which is great. If you like Avatar The Last Airbender, I highly, highly recommend Legend of Korra. I think I like it better. Um, It's a little bit more mature. I like the sort of steampunk world building and the sort of advancements that they've gone in and sort of restructured the world. And it, it tackles a little bit more mature themes of of trauma and uh there's this really great season three arc where there's this sort of like uh, anarchy versus uh civilization arc that goes on and really captivating villains so i i think it's really really great and it also is just really fun and sweet and your kids can enjoy it still but there will be something there for you if you're not a kid and you want to want to watch it um i had never seen it before until watching it recently uh and i had seen some of avatar the last airbender which is definitely geared towards a, a just slightly younger audience um but is is still very much in the same vein of that show and plays off the world that it built and some of those characters so if you like avatar check out legend of korra it is now on netflix i also just finished a uh, another season of a show that I've talked about briefly on the show before, which is a uh, dropout college humors streaming service. Uh, <laughs> they do dimension 20, which is one of their dungeons and dragons, actual play shows. Um, and this season that I just finished is called a crown of candy. And so it is the group of cast members and they're play du- playing dungeons and dragons, but it is set in a world very much an inspired by Game of Thrones, where there's political intrigue and backstabbing, and it's very violent and dark and twisted. But in the world, everyone is food. Um, and so they're in a <laughs> the, like, kingdom that they're defending is like made of candy people. And the like vegetable kingdom is at war with or like declares war on them. And the cheese people are backstabbing others. And the, the bread kingdom is like playing other people. Like there's cake people who are kind of between the, the candy and the pastry families. It's so it's, <laughs> it's ridiculous when you like describe, it but watching it they take it so seriously that you forget you're watching like a, a t-bone steak fight a piece of hard rock candy <laughs> and murder them in cold blood that does not seem um, like something that i could forget yeah <laughs> and that's that's what makes it so great is you'll be you'll at one point be like no this character that i love really really died like they have they have their ned stark moments <laughs> um but but then you'll be like wait a minute that's a piece of cheese <laughs> <laughs> and and you catch yourself laughing at it and it's just really creative in the way yeah. that it can kind of you know, pull that trick on you at times. Uh, and they're all very fun. And uh, it's only like 15 episodes. So if you're into that kind of thing, I recommend Dimension 20's A Crown of Candy. I am actually interested in that kind of thing. I like listening to, to D&D podcasts a lot of the time because they're, they're sort of interesting, spontaneous, long-running stories that are, that are fun to, to check out. So that's, oh, yeah. that's something I've it's never heard great. of before. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. 
any of any of the Dimension Twenty shows. Uh, they have Fantasy High, that's like a John Hughes high school type fantasy story. One called The Unsleeping City that I haven't started. That's like New York, but make it magic. Um, I also recommend the book Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, which uh, won the National Book Award a few years ago, and it's just a really, really great. A story that may not be for everyone at this time because it does start with the inciting incident of a sudden uh, pandemic flu that takes (laughs) over the world. In which almost Um, everyone dies. It's kind of too real, guys. It's really, it's a great book. I love it. But it's very intense at at any time. It it may not be for you right now. Um, But because I had read it before, I I went back and reread some of it. And I kind of knew I was like, okay, that's only the sort of inciting incident. There's much more to it than that. Uh, And there's flashbacks and flash forwards. And HBO is actually uh, producing a 10 episode miniseries, uh, last I heard, which I think is is even better than say, like a movie. So look forward to that. also, the album by Corey Wong, uh, nice. who is a sort of uh, funk classical producer guitarist who's really great. He plays with Wolfpack. Um, his solo album, Trail Songs Dusk, is a collection of really, really beautiful, mostly instrumental uh, acoustic guitar songs, which is very different than a lot of the stuff that he's known for. Um, just really, really beautiful, extremely well-produced layered lush string arrangements um that are still very melodic so if you're in, if you like things like andy mckee or even someone like phil keegi um i i recommend cory wong's trail songs dusk thanks for listening it's unlikely dinosaurs will ever come back to life in our world but perhaps that's what makes jurassic park's legacy everlasting or this is probably a good time to say Life finds a way. If you enjoyed the show, let us know on Twitter at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by Landry Ayers as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org. <laughs>